If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today, I'm excited to talk with two amazing fundraising professionals and nonprofit leaders from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Jeff Spitko, Director of Membership and Audience Management, and Laura Rice, MBA, CFRE, and Senior Director of Sustaining Philanthropy. Let me tell you a little bit of Laura's bio first. Focused on philanthropic support and engagement, Laura has more than 20 years in the sector, excelling at devising creative and strategic solutions, building relationships, and teams. Laura brings with her an extensive fundraising career focused on helping people change the world. She has served in development leadership roles at National University, Girl Scouts of San Diego, the American Red Cross, and UC San Diego School of Medicine. She's also served as the president of the Association of Fundraising Professionals San Diego chapter, as a member of Women Give DEI Committee, and is a graduate of LEAD Impact 2020. Jeff Spitko is Director of Membership and Audience Management for San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. And in his role, he oversees acquisition, retention, and cultivation campaign strategies for the zoo's mass market donors, monthly giving sustainers, VIPs, and membership base of around 400,000 individuals. Since joining the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance in 2014, the annual revenue for these direct marketing programs has more than doubled from $26 million to $56 million. Jeff and I both serve as faculty at the Institute for Charitable Giving, founded by Gerald Panis and William Sturdivant. Our three-day seminar sees the opportunity, the search and close of major gifts, will be hosted in Costa Mesa, California and Chicago, Illinois again this year. And we'll include a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Jeff, Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So good to see you. Great to see you both. I'm going to jump right in because I think this is going to be such a juicy conversation. I mean, you really, you kind of live on both ends of the spectrum, right? In the collaboration would be, it is really so key. And, you know, honestly, I could talk to either of you individually for hours about fundraising and your experience in your respective uh, areas. But I think really talking about how you work together is the highest service to our listeners. For context, will you share a little bit about the San Diego Zoo, your giving programs, and how you segment your supporter base? How do you collaborate and share donors? Yeah, I I can start with that one. I, I think we think of it as handoffs. You know, and it's really interesting. And I'll start with sort of my area, which a former boss of mine always used to say is kind of the ground floor of the donor pyramid. And I always jokingly say, well, if we're the ground floor, then we have a really big basement because there's (laughs) so much you need to do and tackle before you really get to building a membership base and really building the different audiences that are your prospects coming in the door. 
So the way we think about it is, again, my team oversees membership, mass market fundraising, VIPs. What we look to do is really acquire those donors, cultivate them, and then begin to build that relationships where then we can transfer them over from or located on the marketing team over to philanthropy. And then over on the philanthropy side, my team, we consider essentially Laura and I the bridge. We always jokingly refer to that as really we are the bridge between marketing and philanthropy. We want to make sure that we're bringing these folks in. They truly understand our mission, what we do, how the impacts that they can make through their donation. And then Laura's team, you know, again, and then she has sustaining philanthropy, which we consider up to 25,000. From there, it moves into major gifts up to a million. And from there, principal gifts up to over a million. And I think while it's separated by dollar amount to some capacity, I think a lot of what they do on Laura's side is really prospect research on the pool of donors that we're already working with. So to say, oh, you know, it's a 1,200, 2,500, what's the level they go over? There has to be that constant collaboration of moving individuals back and forth. Because that's the one thing we want to make sure is happening is that donors are constantly communicated with. And whether it happens through a mass market stream, through a mid-level giving stream, through a major gift stream, we want to make sure no one gets lost in that shuffle in between and that they're understanding and receiving all the great communications that we send out. I love that. Laura, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, Jeff, that was a great summary. Thank you for that. You know, our teams are really dynamic in how we work with one another and we need to And it's something that in the time I've been with the team, we're really working more on making sure that our storytelling is the same for our demographics as well as Jeff's. If the general community wonders what the highest priority at the San Diego Zoo is, that shouldn't vary depending on who you talk to. So, for instance, we've been collaborating more so that our member bases of every level are getting the same, whether it's a direct mail appeal or even up to our major gift streams and principal gifts, that if this is our biggest funding priority right now, whether that's a capital campaign or a conservation project, we want to make sure that we have that same steady drumbeat across both segments. I love that. I feel like in my fundraising career and even with clients that I've worked with, sometimes there's a tension between marketing and philanthropy. And I'm not feeling that between the two of you. I feel like you really are in service of the donor and the zoo. Donor-centered fundraising, as we all know, is the most important part of what we do. We're so fortunate as a nonprofit that we have members, right? You know, members who come to the zoo and the safari park and see us face-to-face and see the work face-to-face. Everybody at any member level thinks they're the biggest donor the zoo has ever had. Whatever member level they are, they're like, I'm a member. They're so proud of that. And we appreciate that and respect that. And want to invite people in to, if they want to increase their support about a particular project, a particular species, some folks prefer one of our locations over the other, that we, we can be cognizant of that and make sure that we're offering them the most appropriate ways to engage. Yeah, I think Laura hit on it. At the end of the day, it really comes down to communication. And I've done a lot of consulting over the years. And and I find that where there is traditionally a rub between marketing and philanthropy, I see it in a lot of different organizations. And I think where I notice the breakdown in communication happens is when it's a lot of it is over list analysis. And really it's, well, I want these donors, so I'm going to flag them. I don't want you touching them. They're mine. They're mine. But then what I'm seeing happens with so many different organizations that I chat with is that leaves a lot of those folks in sort of a communication limbo. 
And then what happens is they're just missing out on things. And so I think what we do really good internally and my team and Laura's team, we meet pretty much weekly. I mean, I, I feel like in terms of stakeholder relationships across the organization, we chat, uh, well, every Thursday we have a status meeting. So uh, we, you know, there's a lot of communication so we can not only figure out what's the messaging we're putting out into what audience is, the level to which we're going into details on that messaging. Because I think we all know, we know what Laura would put in an appeal is very different than sometimes the appeals I, I need to put out because she may be able to talk to her donors in person about it. There's a lot more in-person donor communication happening where I know I'm dealing with scannability. I need to get their attention within seconds, try to keep it as much as I can, and really engage them to the point where they're giving a donation, we're moving them to the next communication that we send out. So I think part of that is really understanding what each of our teams needs from one another and really planning. I mean, it's insane the amount of how far in advance we actually need to look at some of the campaigns that we put out. And I think, when we're agreement on the topics, when we're agreement on who's getting what appeal, that's really the lion's share of what I'm seeing most other organizations really struggling over. I've seen so many departments where it's just totally separate. It's like, here's my list. You don't touch it. Here's the list you get. And that's just going to create animosity. And I think we do a really good job with moves management where, you know, not only is Laura looking at prospects in the donors that I'm working with, she's also really good at saying, hey, this person hasn't given in a while, they may not have the propensity or capacity to give. So we're going to change the flag on them in our CRM to make sure they're getting more of your broad-based mass market communication. And I think, again, that just goes down to making sure that people are getting their full experience with the organization, regardless of where they're serviced. Other than having a specific major gift officer that they speak with on a regular basis, they shouldn't know if they're being serviced out of marketing versus philanthropy. That's our hope is that they don't notice a difference really in the service. And especially even when they move, we don't want them to notice that either. Right. Like I've been with some organizations that it's been sort of a, oh, you've given $50,000. Let me hand you to the next prospect manager who will deal with your relationship. That is not great for donors. <laughs> that feels weird. Yes. Yeah. And we've always figured that the more people somebody hugs when they come to a zoo event, the better. You know, we have donors who've been giving here probably longer than I've been alive. And they remember the stories. They want to tell us the history and we want to honor that. And so they know people who worked here over that whole scope. And we have some folks who like to engage more through special events like our galas. And we have others who, you know, know more about the polar bears than I ever will. And it's such a, a joy to get to be part of that conversation and honestly, very much learn from them so often. Um, but yes, they shouldn't feel like, oh, I've now reached a threshold and they're handing me to another person. That's <laughs> not great for our, for donors. That's something in another work someone had mentioned, you know, it's not that they're your donor. It's that you're one of their cog. And San Diego is a really big, small town. And yeah. we... Every nonprofit I've ever worked for, there are familiar names. And it's really important to keep that, you know, if they're getting three letters or phone calls this month from different nonprofits, what's going to make us stand out? What's relevant about what we're doing? And whatever I get in June, particularly when so many fiscal years end for nonprofits, there's the, you know, help us by June 30th, but there's no why. And I know why. Yeah. It's because your fiscal <laughs> year ends in June 30th. Yeah. 
but it doesn't matter to me. That doesn't make a difference in my giving. So what's the impact that it makes for the donor is always a piece we're really cognizant of. I love that. I love that on so many levels. For one, you're not just engaging them based on the dollar value of their last gift or even their lifetime value, right? You're looking at you're looking at loyalty. You're looking at what are the is it conservation? Is it a specific animal or species? Mm-hmm. Like you're really you understand your donors and you engage them in the ways that are the most meaningful to them. And you want them to have that as you said, like that hug, regardless of whether they are the million dollars and above, 50,000 and above, 25, or they are a $10 a month monthly Mm -hmm. donor, right? I absolutely love that. And I feel like there is a shift and I think it's a good shift. I think that we as fundraisers, you know, our best practice has been donors that give at this level, get these touch points in these channels on these months. Donors who give at these lower levels get less touch points, get less outcomes or impact reporting. Get They just get less, less often, less personal. And, you know, I think that we're waking up. Like, you don't have to mm-hmm. look very far. U.S. giving is down. Canadian giving is down. Yeah. The number of U.S. household giving is significantly lower than it was. It's below 50% now. Mm-hmm. And it was two-thirds of households were giving just a decade ago. And so we're wising up that we've got to take care of people. Part of it comes down to having better, really, communication tools. Mm -hmm. I think back in the day, it was really around, do we have the staff capacity to really have that personal contact with your donors? I think even in the 10 years I've been with San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, the capabilities that you see in some of the digital tools allow for such levels of segmentation. It's not a degree now where it's like an email. We are constantly looking through and really segmenting our audience to learn more about them. So we know these individuals may be much more inclined to want to build something. So they're going to probably give to a capital campaign. I know of specific individuals that will absolutely only give to our field work that's happening around the globe. They don't necessarily want to give to brick and mortar or anything that's happening at either of our facilities. So part of it is being able through your CRM to understand your data analysis a little bit better, make sure that you're targeting them appropriately, but it doesn't come down to volume or the quality of touches. The way I always like to kind of give the example, regardless if if Laura's building a personal relationship or she's having lunch with certain donors, it's on me to make sure that the the donors in my queue that I'm working with feel a personal connection. And so part of that is making sure I'm getting more information that they want to hear about specifically to them that doesn't feel like spam. We're not getting them things they don't necessarily want to see, but really engaging them more on a regular basis. I always use the analysis of think of it like a friend or someone that is in your life that you want to keep in touch with. If they haven't heard from you in a while and all of a sudden you're asking them for money, the other analysis I always say is think of it as your kids. Like if your kids only talk to you and said, hey, mom, I need money and then don't talk to you again until you need money, that's going to strain your relationship. It's the same with your donors. And so what are you getting in front of them? Is it if it's always appeals that are just straight up fundraising appeals, it's not going to feel like an authentic relationship and it isn't an authentic relationship. You have to manage the good times and the bad times and follow up with items that are happening in terms of 
where their donation went for impact. You have to learn from them. I love surveying members. I love surveying donors. I want to make sure I'm hearing from them. I also love be- when I'm at events, I run around like a maniac just trying to talk to people because it's such an opportunity to kind of say, hey, you know, what do you think? Do you, you know, I, we've changed up our membership materials. What do you think about this? What are you enjoying? What, what's the reason you're renewing? What is, you, you've been a member with us for 15 years. What is it that's keeping you from doing that? And so being able to get that information to create that constant stream of really fluid communications that aren't all about a fundraising ask are a critical part of maintaining that relationship. Because it is, I mean, I'm not meeting with these folks in person like Laura and her team are, other than maybe a couple donor events per year. But I still need to have that omni-channel communication relationship with them where they're hearing from me through advertising, through email, through print. Because otherwise, if you're not staying top of mind, they're hearing from a lot of other organizations and they will easily give to one of those who is spiking their interest at a point where they're not hearing from you. I think that's a great point, Jeff. I think, too, we've been fortunate as the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance has participated in the Rose Bowl the last few years. Parade, rather. We are not in the bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the Rose Parade. You know, we're hearing from donors who are just in awe of how beautiful our floats are, what impact they're making, the stories that they're telling. And it's been really fun on our side. Last year, we had a year-end campaign that focused on our polar bear habitat. And Chinook, the polar bear, was at the front of the Rose Parade float. Not actual him, but, you know, Rose version him. (laughs) And so it was such a fun touch to get to thank donors and then tell them to stay tuned on New Year's Day to, you know, see Chinook rolling down Pasadena Avenue. And it's something that we're really fortunate here that we have a tremendous research and stewardship team who, as gifts come in, identify our $1,200 and above giving donors, which is where our philanthropic support level on membership really starts. And then they assign those out to our major and sustaining gift officers for thank you call. And those thank you calls are our first step in connecting with the donor just to say thank you and to learn about their interests and determine appropriate next steps. If they supported our Elephant Valley Capital Campaign, maybe we'll invite them for a tour to see our work, see how close we are to completion. So we continue to qualify and cultivate them based on those interests and how those match with our needs. And again, it varies person by person, and we have folks who prefer one thing over another, and that's great. How lucky are we, as Jeff mentioned, in that basement, you know, there's donors who want to support everything. So we just have to find those matches and make sure that we're able to offer the right opportunity at the right time. Yeah, so good. And I can hear our listeners. Some of our listeners are with organizations that are much smaller than the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. But it really is all about scale. Yes, you have a team of prospect researchers who are filtering through that data, a team, but you're also filtering through 400,000 pieces of data, individual records, right? And so it really is about scale. If you've got one person who part of their accountability is prospect research, but they're screening a much smaller pool, like this is scalable. What you are doing, surveying, customizing communication through digital automated email marketing and other digital tools is all scalable, whether you are big and amazing like the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance or whether you are a small, grassroots, extraordinary, feisty organization. 
And I, and I think that's what I always tell people is regardless of the size of your organization, don't overthink your segmentation. I think at the end of the day, it is really about, like you said, scaling and building. What do you have the resources to start with? I would say anyone coming right out of the gate, think in two buckets. Think about people likely to engage with you and the people that already are likely to engage with you. Other words, known as prospects and current donors. And then, you know, manage that list to the point where you're moving them and then start to break it down from there. You know, your prospect lists, you may move them into warm leads or books who are a little bit closer. And it's also important to really monitor that list. If they're not opening your emails after a certain amount of time, move them off, give them a break. But in terms of your current list of donors, I do think that's where you really could go into a lot of detail, but you don't have to. You know, I think depending on how you're writing your communications, if you can vary that list slightly, like say for example, in our case, we know that there may be people who are very interested in building something at the San Diego Zoo or San Diego Zoo Safari Park and want to support that construction, new projects, new habitats. And then there's people who are very passionate about the conservation work that we're doing around the globe. So they might want to support our wildlife trafficking work or the different aspects of what we're doing in Kenya. There's the ability to do that. And if we know who you are, we can move those folks into different email lists. And quite frankly, we can run it based on what they're responding to. I think surveying is always great. And I think you want to understand nuances of specifically why they're giving, why they're giving again, especially if, if they're you know looking at, at first year retention and multi-year retention. But then what's fascinating to me is just sort of beginning to peel that layer. Because what some folks will say maybe in a survey, you'll learn more from how they're responding. So I may say this is what causes me to give, but I think that's the beauty of direct response and direct marketing is we test everything. We test subject lines, we test images. You're able to see in real time what donors think of the content that you're putting out and what they're responding to. And I think if you think about your testing strategy, what you really wanna learn that's gonna move the needle on your fundraising you can begin to make simple modification to your list file in order to target them more. You know, you can always slice it and dice it any way you like, but you, you have that flexibility. And I think people see it as daunting until they're in it. I mean, trust me, you can make it as daunting as you like. It can get very <laughs> complex. But I think stepping back sometimes from your data and saying, okay, I'm overthinking this. Right. Like, let's get down to the basics of who are these folks? Why do they care about us? What is really interesting about our mission that is going to make them want to fund it? What do they find urgent? And how are we standing out against what else is in their email bin in their mailbox? You know, that's always a differentiating factor. And I, I think folks in our field, I wouldn't use the word stock. I'm on every list under the sun. I've given small donations here, there. Nothing I find more interesting than seeing what other people are putting in market and just understanding for it. And I think that teaches yourself about what motivates you. But then again, don't confuse that your audience, you're never your target audience. I tell people that all the time. But I think seeing what other people are putting out is always really interesting to me. You can capture trends pretty quickly. I agree. I, I think I'm a member of like 12 different monthly giving programs. And I've even like stopped and renewed to see how they would re-engage me. I just, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I received an email recently that really stopped me in my tracks. I was scanning my mailbox and it said, this is the last email we're going to send you. 
And it was from a newsletter I'd signed up for, but I hadn't been seeing until that one. And so I saw the one that said, we're going to remove you. And I thought, no, I want to get these. And so I actually ended up in a one-on-one email back and forth with the, the post of this project. And we tried to figure out why it was going to this and spam and so on. And I mean, they weren't even showing up in my spam. But gosh, did my attention get alerted by that. This is the last email we're going to send you. And it's actually mm-hmm. something I think we're going to want to test on some of our segments to see who says, oh, no, I love hearing from the zoo. Even if maybe we aren't hearing from them, they're still feeling that connection. And I think that with the major gift and sustaining gift teams, keeping that ongoing communication, like Jeff mentions, is so important. We offer at least quarterly touches, personal outreach, there's engagement events. You know, there's some donors that I text when I pass by the elephants and I send a picture and say, you know, Nifo says hi, just depending on that relationship. And then there's folks who are very happy giving at whatever level it is, and they're going to do that forever. And that's great. And we are so grateful to them. And it means that we don't need to spend the same kind of energy on that relationship as we might on something else. And that's where we will have them live happily in the mid-level stream or the higher stream or the mass market stream or whatever it is, that they're still getting those components of cultivation and stewardship and the asks that they do want to participate in, but without the extra components. Then there's others who tell me they're coming and they want to know, you know, is this animal still at checkpoint 16? And so we're happy to help at whichever level that is. With us too, I think because we have such different opportunities to give across the board, As Jeff has mentioned, whether it's capital or conservation or critter specific, being sure that we're paying attention to that and knowing what our donors want to hear is really important. This last year, we started these insider alerts. So our donors are getting more information about what's really of the moment at the zoo and the safari part. And that's been huge. Folks love that personalization. We're forever taking a look at what's on our social channels and making sure that we're sharing that with donors as well. There was an amazing video last week of one of our elephants having a great time in the San Diego rain. And I mean, I think it went viral. I think it's in USA Today now as well. And being able to share that kind of joy with folks is, is really a privilege. Yeah. And social has become, I think in terms of channels, has grown so much. You know, when I talk about how if membership is the ground floor that we have a really big basement, that basement, when I think of that, is the cultivation work that happens before they give their first donation. So what we do a lot of, you know, we have an amazing social team that does a lot with those social channels. And one of the things that we're really trying to drive is how can you move social followers to email subscribers and then move email subscribers to donors? The ability to donate quickly through social is, is really challenging. But what we know is that if you're constantly engaging them, they do want to hear more from you through other channels. And I think there's a lot of new swipe up campaigns, different things you can do through social, through TikTok, Instagram, where you can begin to collect those emails and then put them into a cultivation stream. So if you sign up for our emails, you'll start to get a, a specific cultivation that goes out automatically as a sort of quick series. And the hope there is to drive you and make sure that we're just shepherding you in properly in your first experiences of dealing with us. And then we'll really start the increase in terms of the communications that you're getting. But I think one of the things that we see from a lot of smaller organizations, they hit the gas really hard on the asks and a light on the thank you and a really light on the follow-up. So the rule of thumb I always say is donors want to know, especially through mass market channels, the impacts that their donation made within three months. 
So I always try to make sure we're giving some sort of follow-up before we go out with sort of larger scale additional asks, just so they know the impact that they're making. Because otherwise, if they're not hearing why and, and what success was achieved through their donation, trust me, they're probably getting 10 other emails from other organizations today. And we want to, again, stay top of mind. There's a donor journey depending on where you are in your relationship with the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and we, my team, like we're called membership and audience management. It really is. It's not just, hey, get them to buy a membership. It is all different aspects. So if you're a mass market donor, what does that journey look like trying to get you to hopefully go from being a mass market donor to a monthly donor? And then if there's someone that's passionate enough to be a monthly donor and give on a regular basis, in a lot of cases, maybe a strong prospect to go even farther up the philanthropy spectrum. So we always try to think about the intersections of where the various handoffs could happen and how are we analyzing those other groups to see if they're able to move up or make sure that they're being cultivated more if we need to move them down or downgrade them to other pieces. For example, even if you want to cancel your monthly donation to us, one of the first things we'll ask is, would you be willing to reduce the amount of your donation? Can we pause your donation for a while and then contact you back again in three months? You know, we want to build that relationship and there's the thought process that it's always an upward trajectory and it's just not, you know, we want to know our donors and where they are in the relationship with us. And it's important to kind of stay with them, whether they're going up, down, sideways, wherever it's for the long haul. And to do that, I think we need to follow their lead rather than just pushing them in a place to go higher when that may not be where they are with us. Yeah. I think that was a big lesson we learned really from the pandemic. We mm -hmm. reached out to supporters and we're like, how are you? How can we help? Right? Especially, Laura, in your world where we have face-to-face -face relationships, but Jeff, likely even in your world, you know, through surveys and questionnaires and just following, as you said, following their lead. Yeah. Behaviors tell us so much, even if they're mm -hmm. not speaking words to us. Well, and we were so fortunate um, with the pandemic, the San Diego Zoo website went off the hook. Speaking as a parent, what can I give my children to do now that we are stuck at home all the time forever? And went crazy with everybody wanting to see whether it's the webcams or learning the stories of the work that we're doing. And that's something that I think was actually a really great lesson for us because it helped us to, to change that messaging in some cases. Um, our CEO joked that, you know, they did a webinar and you might think that the community wants to learn from leadership, but all anybody wanted to talk to was the folks who take care of the polar bears, find out what's happening mm -hmm. with them. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, folks really care about the wildlife we care for. And when we had to close our doors, that was a huge challenge for folks. We still had our wildlife care staff taking care of them, but there were many wildlife who missed the community. You know, they're used to having a little interaction. So I think that, you know, being able to share those stories was really important. And we've integrated that still into the events that we offer, depending on your level of giving or membership or what have you. We have a few different events a year and there's those culminate up to our State of the Alliance event, which is with leadership and also with our wildlife ambassadors. Um, so you get both sides. 
because I think being able to share that face-to-face interaction with our wildlife and with our leadership, we're finding the right happy medium mix of that. That is what the donors want to know, both from the trajectory of the organization and just how is baby Kaja the orangutan? (laughs) So good. Share with us, if you will, like what are your criteria and process for identifying direct response supporters that are ready to move to mid-level or maybe to a major gift portfolio? Or what would be the criteria and process when a supporter maybe who is assigned to a major gift officer or lives in a portfolio, so to speak, when do you identify when it's time to transition them back to mid-level or the mass marketing pool? Yes, I think for us, really, those thank you calls I mentioned are a key component of that. That starts our qualification track. It's important to recognize that qualification is often multifaceted. You know, I think as development officers, sometimes we think, okay, I need one qualification call. Well, maybe, but it depends again on the donor. And with our segmentation, maybe I need to offer them a tour. Maybe we need to have that to face to see what makes them light up. For us, with those quarterly check-ins that we do and the different events, we want to offer folks at least a year of engagement before we say, no, they're not interested in this or that or the other thing. And I think that's something we're putting more definition around. You know, you don't want to, quote unquote, disqualify someone from something because just because they don't fit one particular demographic doesn't mean that they're not exactly right for something else. So we're trying to be more cognizant of that and recognize with our campaigns, if somebody makes a larger gift, obviously that's an easy way for us to recognize that we need to help move them up. We also look a lot at wealth screening and analytics to help see what that capacity might be which can be tricky. If you own land in California, you probably look like a millionaire, but are you really? And so being able to take a look at what might be realistic. And to Jeff's point, folks who love us forever and now their kids are in college and maybe their giving levels coming down, but their love for us hasn't changed. And so recognizing where it's appropriate to continue that higher level of engagement. And then conversely, if there's, if we don't hear back after a year of earnest efforts, well, then let's let their giving dictate what communications they're receiving and we'll leave it there. But then again, you never know if they get our urgent alert about what's happening with the spider monkeys and their their trafficking that we're helping assuage, maybe that's the piece that's going to bring them back. So we're always paying attention to what reactions we're receiving from donors based on and their interactions. Yeah, we do that a little bit too. You have to read the room. I, I mean, I think even, for example, we have the membership side, we have the donation side. And we know, we, we've seen this a lot. When people can visit, they're obviously going to renew their membership. They're going to come. More likely they are. We see a lot of individuals who raise their kids here, have such a, an affinity towards the organization and that really you know, sentimental aspect of seeing their family interact on our grounds but may hit a point where either through health issues or, or the kids not wanting to visit, it doesn't make sense for them to purchase a membership anymore. They're primary individuals that would be perfect for monthly giving because they have a passion for us. They are confident that their money is going to a great place because they don't understand our mission. So we need to be wise and not just going after them with lapse recapture efforts for membership and pivoting to really understand. And so we need to look at what's their visitation pattern. When was the last time they gave? What are they engaging with in emails? That is one of my favorite things to look at. And sometimes we dive deep here. Well, they open the conservation ones, but they don't open the ones maybe about facility visitation. So you get to understand those patterns and you just have to read the room and make sure you 
you know, we kind of say this because we work at a wildlife care facility, but you have to feed them what they eat and make sure that you understand what is their passion. And while our mission covers a lot of different areas, they may not be passionate about a lot of those. We have people that really aren't into animals, but are really passionate about our botanical gardens. And so understanding that nuance is important. We have some donors who care very much about children and not necessarily animals. So they'll support some of the efforts that we do with funding education, funding um, children's visitation, funding our, our facilities around Children's Zoo, our Wildlife Explorer Base Camp. So it's really understanding sort of the nuances of what they're passionate about. I love this conversation. And, and one of the things, when you pull back the curtain to this degree, one of the things that is abundantly clear is that, you know, times really have changed. I mean, some of us have been fundraising for 20 years, more than 20 years. I'm seeing nods here. Yeah. But here's the thing. It used to be we poured all our energy into getting that campaign out the door, whether it was in the mail or we pushed send or we set it up in that automated email marketing. So those things were going to drip out on schedule. Or maybe it was that capital campaign. We got through the leadership phase. We're in the major gift phase. Regardless, we spend so much time getting the case right, figuring out what to say, how much to ask for, getting it out the door. And then we kind of go, whew, now let me just see, let's see what happened. You know, let's see when those checks come in. Let's watch when the daily gift report comes. But the truth is that is when the work really begins, looking at the analytics looking at who opened what, who's responding to which appeal, which subject line, like the campaign is just getting started when you push send. Yeah. The way I talk to my team about it is I almost to a degree, and this may seem blasphemous, I don't like us thinking in the term campaign. I always say, let's continue the conversation. I mean, I think our partnership with Lara's team and the philanthropy department we work much more integrated around certain times of year where we do larger campaigns like spring appeal and obviously year-end appeal. And there's a lot of nuances that go into the audience segmentation on those. But I'm thinking, you know, we lay it out like a Scorsese movie. Like we want to see what's the points of the emotional journey that they have from the time they, you know, January, January 1st. You know, we know that they're going to feel a little tired there's going to be a little donor fatigue because we have gone after them really hard with your end giving. And that's a period of time where we want to talk stewardship. We want to talk the impact that they made. Let's get impact stories out, give them a little bit of breathing room. And then we go into February. So we're, we're constantly thinking of that journey and not only, you know, the, the ebbs and flows of making sure we're inspiring, asking, thanking, and reporting back, but just what else are they getting in their mailboxes? I mean, this year we have a, a national election. And so we already know, like, if I want people to really pay attention to our stuff, that probably needs to happen in August and September, where it is typically just the point where we're starting to figure out year end and really getting that stuff to, to sort of lay the groundwork. So you, you have to understand the patterns of them and looking at it from their perspective, as opposed to, hey, this is the time of year where I want them to do this. Because regardless of what you want them to do, you have to think what realistically they are likely to do or what else they're going to have going on in their minds. It's really, you know, the thing I love about what we do, and, you know, I prefer, I obviously prefer working in my side as opposed to doing direct, 
donor work like Laura and her team. But I love the psychology of it. Nothing fascinates me more than coming up with a campaign, putting in market, seeing what they respond to, seeing what they liked, didn't like, pivoting quickly, changing up content, changing imagery, and then seeing the results. And I think all of that over the years makes you realize, regardless of what you think is coming, you don't know until you put it in market. <laughs> it is all a mystery. And I kind of, that's fascinating to me. But it always comes down to it's not about you, it's about them. And I think regardless of what you're trying to get them to do, because they've done this before, you've got to know what else is going on in the world and what else they're going to be seeing in their email bin and in their mailbox, what anxiety they may have in terms of market. Like we said, in general, I think giving is down about 16% nationally, at least on the mass market side. So we know there's something causing it. And it, it could be anxiety, it could be inflation, just there's lots of different factors, but really taking all that into the mindset when you're figuring out what you're asking your donors to do. And to Jeff's point, this year especially, you know, we're really talking about leaning into joy because this is going to be a year that's going to be hard for folks across the board. And we've come through so much as a country and as a world, which is exciting. And there's really great conservation benchmarks we're hitting that we do want to celebrate and share. And every new baby born is, of course, a huge celebration. And so being able to make sure that we're able to lean into that more even than maybe some other organizations might. Though I do want to mention, too, in, in my past life from a social services side, making sure you're doing that stewardship piece that we're talking about is so critical. And ensuring that you're saying thank you and that they know what impact they've made before you go for any more asks. When I was at the Red Cross, we started putting together just these little your gift at work postcards. And you have to be really careful on the social services side that you're not accidentally being exploitative to anyone or sharing stories that you don't really have the bandwidth or appropriateness to share. But we were able to say, hey, because of you and other gifts last month, we were able to help this many people who were displaced by a house fire, provided supplies for this many pets offered this many gift cards, et cetera, et cetera. And that quantifiable piece can be really meaningful for people. I know we all love the individual stories and that's critical. But when you can't say we helped Tammy, you can still say we helped this many folks and this is what it looked like. And so I think being able to be flexible with the way that you tell that story, regardless of your nonprofit, is really important. I love that. And so there have been a couple of times you've mentioned the power of story. And you've also talked about your team. Talk to me about maybe a collaborative success story where your efforts came together, you know, your team efforts, marketing, philanthropy. Well, I think about our year-end appeals that we do and our new habitat that we're working on at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park is Elephant Valley, which will be transformative to the location and such a great place to really showcase the conservation work, not only happening here in San Diego, but also across the globe. And so that's a perfect example where you know, my team and Laura's team, we work together to really meet with, you know, the head of the safari park, with the architect working on it, with folks that are in the field, you know, not in the field in, here in San Diego, but in the field in Kenya, you know, working on our elephant projects because we really cross-pollinate all of those projects. You know, the work that we do in the field, we showcase here. And what we learn from the elephants in our care at the San Diego Zoo the Safari Park we take those lessons learned and apply them to the field. So it's interesting. And I think working through that messaging and hearing directly from the individuals that are working on conservation, we take it very seriously to make sure we're conveying the story properly. 
you know, obviously we want to persuade them to give. And I think there's folks who are going to give for different reasons. But what I love is when we literally sit down and it's Lars' team and my team and we figure out like, okay, what's the nuances between the mass market appeal, maybe a higher level mass market appeal, going into mid-level giving, and what is her major gift officers getting? It's fascinating because it does, sometimes it depends on time. You know, major gifts will often use those appeals to go down and sit with the donors and have that conversation where I know, okay, they're going to get emails that are going to go along with the direct mail packet I send out. What is going to grab their attention? What is going to grab their attention on the OE? And I think about it as like a couple of components. What does that outer envelope look like where I can make sure they open it? Kind of the equivalent of a subject line with the emails. It's, it's like a movie. How are we continuing the conversation? Because one, we want to make sure they open the envelope. Two, if they open it, we want to make sure they at least scan through certain pieces. So even thinking about the sight line and the scannability, and are we putting a premium in there that's going to draw their attention more? What are the visuals that we're using? And how are those visuals authentic to not only the work that we're doing in the field, but what is going to be representative of when that um, specific habitat comes to life? And next year, I think 2025, 2026, when that's ready for folks to come visit. And how are we keeping them engaged? Not only through those initial pieces, but what are the touch points after? How are we segmenting those? So in some cases, Laura's group may get additional presentations or webinars that they're talking with the animal care team. And obviously we try to version that out as much as we can, but in some cases we can't create a version for mass market. Mm -hmm. Or in some cases, I love the way we tier where it may be Lara's donors are going to have that in-person live webinar or meeting with the animal care team. But guess what? We're going to record that and we're going to share it in an e email with my folks later. So I love us thinking through and when we have those meetings, just figuring out the nuances of what we can leverage internally, what messages we can take and how that can apply to both our audiences. I love that. And you're repurposing content mm -hmm. as appropriate Absolutely. for the channel or the medium. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I think, you know, as Jeff mentions, that comes all the way from the direct mail piece, including the pamphlet or the brochure that we might include, that the major gift officers are going to go and have a conversation about, do you want to name the watering hole? Whereas the mass market, we want to make sure that we're focusing on different pieces. And it's really both collaborative between our teams and the greater organization. And I think that's a really important piece. Elephant Valley is huge. And our Safari Experiences team were the ones who made the recommendation. We have a, a balloon, a hot air balloon, but it goes up 249 feet. So it doesn't impact FAA regulations at the Safari Park. <laughs> and they're like, well, why don't you take donors up in the balloon so they can actually see the bird's eye view of the construction that's happening at Elephant Valley? Genius. Wow. I can drive by in a cart all day long, but that different perspective wouldn't have crossed my mind. And that's something our team really focuses on, too, with the donor engagement events, because it takes the full organization for those to be successful. So we work with our buildings and grounds crew and we work with construction and maintenance and the sign shop and security and catering and guest services and all those pieces. You know, everybody has a different slice of that expertise. And so being able to provide our donors with the very best experience is so incredibly important. 
And as Jeff mentioned as well, um, when it comes to a, a new exhibit opening, a new habitat, a new experience, we're going to be inviting folks who gave at different levels to come to special events beforehand so that they get to see where their plaque is and they get to sit on their bench and they get to be face to face with that elephant for the first time and have that interaction that um, you really can't get anywhere else. I love those kinds of immersive approaches. I think they're like magical. They can be truly magical and enchanting and for certain transformational. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Laura. When you and I first met, it was just serendipity. We were at AFP ICON, the international conference. We were staying at the same hotel and we rode the bus over to the convention center. This was in New Orleans. And I just happened to sit next to you and we started up a conversation. And you told me a story about a donor, an incredible supporter who had hit a milestone. And you created with your team at some kind of immersive event with a, an elephant. You're smiling. You know the story. Can you share that story? Yeah, happy to. I have to give all the credit to my philanthropy events and donor engagement team. They are the absolute most amazing events specialists that exist. And they too, again, working with the wildlife care specialists, what's appropriate, you know, what the way that we've worked with animals over time has changed. And that's just true across the board. And so when we know better, we do better. And so we're really careful that we aren't, you know, when you come to the zoo or the safari park, this is not a circus. This is not a performative experience for folks. But one of our very major donors made an incredibly meaningful gift. And so we were able to provide an event for him to celebrate the support. And with that, we were able to go to a part of the safari park that normally only the wildlife care team goes on. And it's between the two elephant yards. And um, the elephants can go back and forth between the two, depending on how they feel and what's going on. And so they were forever working with them because elephants are so incredibly smart. They have to work with them all the time to keep things interesting. Um, they'll move where food is. They'll move all these different things so they have to explore and exhibit the same behaviors that they do in nature. We have found that the elephants at the safari park take as many steps a day as the elephants in Africa do. So we want to make sure that this experience is as true to what they would be experiencing in the wild as possible. But with that, we get the elephant care team gets to work really closely and have a lot of fun. And so they get to interact with the animals to make sure that they can do things like open their mouth for a dental exam. Well, you cannot make an elephant do what an elephant does not want to do. <laughs> and so the relationships that they've built to help, like when you put the hand here, it means this type of thing are just extraordinary. And so with that, we worked with the team and they had shared that they could, in fact, have our youngest elephant come out and hand the stoner a hard hat from his trunk to the stoner as a thank you for supporting this event. And it was one of those talk about serendipity moments that as this happened in sunny San Diego, a rainbow went across the sky. It was just straight magic. And then we took folks down to the watering hole, which it's a restaurant with beautiful views of the savannas. And you can see the giraffes and the rhinos and the Cape Buffalo. And I mean, the donor said it was the best night of his life. And, you know, I recognize not everybody has a baby elephant, but there are special things like that that you can offer to donors in a meaningful way that make a difference. And it's something that I have to say the zoo does in a beautiful way. When Wildlife Explorers Base Camp opened, gosh, I guess that was two years ago now. For my, two years. 
Jeez. My family had made a contribution and they let staff bring their families to see the space. And my kids were convinced they were the very first people who ever set foot in Wildlife Explorers Base Camp. I have not <laughs> thought there'd be any reason to tell them otherwise. So being able to do that, whether that's before hours, after hours, having someone who's been impacted by your work tell the story, it's something we're really cognizant of. Um, the polar bear habitat campaign we mentioned that was part of year end. Last year, our year end event for our President's Club's members, again, our, our higher level membership philanthropic group, um, we had the head of curator of mammals come and talk about the polar bears because they want that behind the scenes real stories of who loves which fish and what is it Chinook likes to do the most. And, oh, I saw that one loves to lay in the snow. And this, and that, so that type of really engaging personal experience is critical. And it is wonderful to do with wildlife. And any nonprofit can do it with their organization and whatever their mission is as well. It just takes a whole lot of creativity. Yeah, I love that. And you're so right. I mean, you have the elephants and all the beautiful animals. <laughs> We're very yeah, lucky. You yes. very yes. lucky. Love it. And I started my career at Girl Scouting. And we partnered with the local universities, Society for Women Engineers, who were bringing in Dr. Sally Ride, like the first woman astronaut in space. And, and so we got a few seats. And our, the girls who were in our Girl Scouting STEM program got to meet Dr. Ride. They sat there and listened to her talk. She took questions afterward. And it was sweet. Like one older girl, you have a tenure at Girl Scouting too, Absolutely. Laura. One of the older girls, a junior, raised her hand and said, how did you break through the glass ceiling, you know, in an astronaut program? And another little girl, a brownie, said, you know, Dr. Ride, how do you go to the bathroom in space? You know, like these are just such endearing moments. And most organizations can figure out something. I mean, I also grew up fundraising for children and families and mental and behavioral health. So obviously very sensitive. We have to respect, and you mentioned the importance of ensuring dignity and appropriateness and all of those things. That's a given, period. And there are still opportunities, whether it's an expert speaker, there's always something that can be done that's immersive and magical or moving and truly inspirational, right? It's a conversation I've been having with some other colleagues in the field, uh, particularly around the research and science side of the house. Those, there's such tremendous work being done, but generally speaking, research goes slow. And if you gave this month, next month, there isn't necessarily something to update you on yet. When we talk with the scientists and we ask them to share, maybe it's a quarterly report on what the impact is and how the program is progressing. That makes such a difference as well. And especially, I think, in those areas, folks who support that kind of work tend to have more of a science lens. And so they are interested in what the, you know, slides found. But what, whatever the next steps are in the process towards the outcomes that we're trying to find. And I think that's such an important component. And it's something we try to do here as well, that if maybe we get a grant report from a researcher about the work they're doing for the frozen zoo, and then we can take that information and parse that out to other donors with those interests and, and make sure that we're sharing the good news, whatever it is, in that process. And that's something, again, on the event side we've been working on. Conservation can be tricky to help engage people with. Again, because it's not a short-term project. 
But last year, we partnered with our conservation researchers and scientists to create an event where donors can engage with the actual experts face-to-face in these conservation stations. And it had such a great response. You know, got to put an endoscopy camera down the throat of a plush lion. And it's a lot harder than you think. And just these pieces that, you know, there was an example of how a specimen's taken. And it said, yeah, now imagine this is an actual rhino who's moving. And so just these pieces where I think so many of us wish we had that science piece and want to have that experience. And so being able to have just an inkling of what it's like to do some karyotyping or whatever it might be is such an exciting thing for our folks. Amazing. And just for clarity. A plush lion is like a stuffed animal, yes? yes? Like the little rhino behind you. Correct. But when you say a stuffed animal, some people think we mean taxidermy. And we we mean plush made of probably polyester and cotton. Thank you very much. I wanted to make certain that wasn't a variety. Yes. (laughs) So amazing. All right. For both of you, you know, with the evolving landscape of fundraising, there's a lot of trends. There's a lot of tools that are emerging. You've mentioned the importance of a a great CRM with good data integrity. You've talked about surveys and behavioral modeling and automated email and, you know, tools that help us prospect research and segment. What are you you finding that's emerging? Are you embracing AI-based tools? What's next for you? And what should be on the minds and, you know, kind of in the forward vision for our listeners? I think this can be tricky for folks. Normally, nonprofits have small budgets. Normally, emerging technology is not free. And so this is a place where I think being able to balance the ROI of what's going to make sense for you and your organization is really important. And if you're able to partner with consultant agencies who might have expertise in different areas, that can be really critical for you. I mean, for us, honestly, some of that was even just partnering to create peer-to-peer fundraising pages that are easy for folks to use for tribute, memorial, gifts. In the past, not that long ago, when somebody wanted to have a birthday fundraiser, the answer was mail your checks to the zoo. Well, most folks don't necessarily have checks these days, and most of the folks who want to do this fundraiser aren't going to really appreciate the ease with which that has happened. So I think that there's components you have to take a look at. Jeff, I know you had some thoughts about this. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I'm seeing really emerge is programmatic video. You know, I think video is becoming just such a source that's critical to really showcase your mission. And I think what people always need to realize, especially the smaller nonprofits, you don't need to hire a video services crew for everything. I mean, everyone's cell phone has video in it especially for quick appeals that you want to get out the door. Sometimes quick video can mean a lot. Using video in your digital advertising, I think where I'm seeing a a larger scale difference really is just in the audiences that we're reaching. I mean, I think of the days when people would just buy lists, you know, even for membership. When I joined the organization, they were primarily doing acquisition through new mover guides and through parenting magazine lists that they would buy. So you think today, most people are using consumer data platforms. They call them CDPs. And essentially with those, you know, they're really targeting messaging through digital advertising, through connected devices. And you think about all the connected devices that you have in your home. I think the average statistic is that most U.S. households have about 25 connected devices. And that number's doubled in the last two years. 
So wow. being able to really micro target your messaging as opposed to just saying, hey, we're the San Diego Zoo. We know that moms are going to be a big part of our marketing. So let's just buy parenting magazine lists. It's such an outdated tool where now we need to micro target and know, hey, this is you on your computer versus your husband versus your child. How are we getting those messages in front of you that are going to appeal to your consumer? How are we making sure that we're doing omni-channel marketing and that we're really timing out the mail pieces of when they're hitting with your emails that we're giving versus digital advertising in market? It really needs to be, the way we explain it is almost essentially a symphony. I always say they refer to them as their toolkit. They have the individual tactics and, and not to think of it as a toolkit, but think of it as a symphony. How are you looking at surround sound and everything that you're putting out in the market to make sure it's amplifying the messages that are getting there? And we even do that. I think part of that's aligning with the other parts of your organization. So what do I know public relations is putting out and how can I get on top of that? What is social putting out? How can I utilize that in my overarching messaging? Anything that is going to be in market, to me, is an extra touch that can help me lift the conversation or lift a, a campaign coming up. So I think it really, for me, boils down to audience and just understanding those groups better because people are getting so many messages these days. If it's not targeted to them and feels too general, you lose them right out of the gate. Makes perfect sense. I could keep talking to you forever and ever, but <laughs> this podcast does need to end at some point. So I just want to give you both an opportunity to share any parting wisdom, advice, encouragement with our listeners as we wrap up this episode. I think it's so easy for us. We're all so passionate about what we do. We become walking encyclopedias about our organization. But nobody wants to hear us go through a litany of all the reasons why we think this is the best place on earth. And that's true in campaigns you're putting out, in conversations you're having, and everything in between. I remember early in my career, I had a donor visit with my supervisor and we were walking back to the office and he just said, aren't we lucky? We get to help people change the world. And that mm -hmm. has stuck with me because no matter what organization it is, you are doing good work for this place. And it's easy for us to get lost from that when we're focused on metrics and goals and timelines and fiscal year end, et cetera. But we are, we're helping change the world. And so I think that making sure that you keep that perspective helps you continue to be perseverant, helps you be proactive, helps you to be optimistic. And also as a fundraiser to remember that when a donor says no, it almost never has anything to do with you. It almost always is not right now, not that way, not quite that program. Oh, wait, my kids are in college, whatever it is. You can't take it personally and you have to keep seeing what the right fit might be. I love that. So everyone, pick up a pen, a Sharpie, and a Post-it <laughs> and write, I am changing the world. And please put that on your computer or wherever you are going to see it each morning before you start your day. Or maybe in those moments when you are feeling a little fatigued, maybe a little stressed. Yeah, such a great perspective. Thank you, Laura. All right, Jeff, top that. Well, I think two things. I think one, fundraising is never a burden. That's one of the big pieces of advice. I think so many people getting into the industry. Because I came, I started in communications. I was in marketing, PR, and eventually made my way to fundraising. And I was terrified of it. And I think it's because you feel like you are burdening people and that asking for money is a burden. 
Somebody said this to me one time and they said, well, when you go to a theme park, you pay for that exhilaration of getting on a ride. You pay for a haunted house. You pay for that exhilaration of being scared. When you're donating and giving a gift, you're giving that feeling of knowing the impact that you made. You're bringing joy not only to the people or animals or whoever that's impacting, but also the person that is giving. So it's never a burden. And I think when you approach it from that mindset, I think it's helpful. And then I always think of people overcomplicate storytelling a little bit. And at the end of the day, we all know how to tell a story. You know, we've seen every Disney movie. We've seen every TV show. We grew up on it. We know the basic concept of antagonist, protagonist, conflict, resolution. And I think it all comes down to that of just telling your story and using your characters. You know, we're lucky that we have this amazing two facilities that showcase our conservation work. And what we'll do in a lot of cases is take one of the named animals that we have on grounds to showcase the conservation work happening in the wild. For example, we had a beautiful northern white rhino named Nola, who was one of the last northern white rhinos on the planet that was actually at our safari park. And we used Nola as really the face of what was happening with rhinos disappearing and rhinos being poached and showcasing through her eyes what's happening with her counterparts in the wild. So the thing I always like to say is think about different ways to just make your story more understandable to people and through that character development and through the passion that you have for it to really touch more lives and make sure they truly understand the work that you're doing. And there's lots of ways to do it. We've even sent emails out from the perspective of a penguin. So, I mean, even <laughs> changing up your signers, there's always different ways to grab the attention of your readers and just always, you know, keep it fresh for them. And, and just continue to engage in that conversation. I love it. Jeff, you held your own. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. Laura's good. <laughs> Laura's good. You're both amazing. I can see why you and others make a great team. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire, insightful questions to add even more value for our listeners. Are you ready? Sure. sure. All right. I'll ask each question and then you can take turns responding. Uh, first question, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? One that's really stuck with me when I was a grant writer was, so what? Because it's really easy for us to say, we're the best whatever in the world. So what? Well, that means that we're making a difference in this. So what? Well, as a result, millions of people's lives are going to be changed and we're going to eradicate this disease or whatever it is. It's easy for us to get lost in the fluff and not actually bring down the impact to an individual level. And that so what question has come in really handy for me when I'm trying to make sure I'm synthesizing the true messaging I want to share. Love that. Jeff, what's your best fundraising advice? It's funny. The one that pops in my head is one when I actually used to do major gift fundraising a bit. And it was once you make that ask, the first person to talk loses. So that one always cracks me up. And it actually applies to being unapologetic when you're doing your communications as well. So I always think that's interesting of, you know, go in with an approach, make your ask, and then let them respond. Yeah, let them think about it. We, as fundraisers, we've been thinking about it for weeks and weeks, if not months and months. And it may be the first time they've actually heard the number, the impact. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I love that. Definitely. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? 
I would say pretty much anything from Tom Ahern. I think he is absolutely brilliant. I think Keep Your Donors with Simone Joyo is one of my favorite data-driven nonprofits from Steve O'Glaughlin. I, I, that is a must-have that I, I make my team read. And one other one that I still, when I was way back when, in the beginning of my career, when I worked in marketing at Vanguard, the head of our department made us read Groundswell by from Forrester, Josh Barnoff, and Charlotte Lee, I think are their names. Amazing. It talks about really thinking of what they call post people, objective strategy, and then technology. Because so many people dive right into, oh, we need an app or we need to do this with technology. And it really makes you center and think about audience first, objective, what you're trying to accomplish, strategy of how you're going to get there. And then probably what you're doing is omni channel. So don't start with the tactics and the technology. And I, that is something I preach to my team all the time. And one of those books I read probably 15 years ago, but I talk about it at least once a week. Amazing. And you're an overachiever. That was four books. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, you're my friend, so I'll let you get away with that. <laughs> Thank you. Laura. Well, I agree with Jeff's recommendations. I also want to add Give to Live mm -hmm. by Douglas Lawson is a longtime favorite of mine. It discusses how giving both your time and money enriches the giver. To the point Jeff was just making, when somebody gets to make that life-changing gift or animal-changing gift or habitat-changing gift, that is a special moment. And the, the positive effects on their health and their long-term longevity are, are true measurable things. And it's, it's a joy to get behold. Amazing. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? I think in a successful fundraiser has to stand proactive and optimistic. You just have to be a glass half full type person or you're not going to do well here. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, and then I think on the, on the mass market side, I think it's empathetic. Mm. You have to sort of be able to, so many marketing writers cannot write fundraising communications because you, there's a different sense of persuasiveness and you really have to have a different sense of empathy. Um, Mass market, you need to be right brain and left brain. So you need to be analytical as well because you need to look at data, understand data, be able to read data to make your decisions. And then I think strategic, you have to be able to pivot quickly. And so always thinking like a chess game, 10 steps of, hey, here's the, they're going to respond depending on what we see, how's we're pivoting. Here's where our next communication is going to come in. You have to think a couple moves ahead in order to be timely and really reach your donors the appropriate way. So good. What's your favorite fundraising application or tool? Google Analytics. I don't think I could live without it. it it's like having a little psychic in a, it, it just, it, it, you're able to kind of really understand what people are truly behaving. And I think there's other tools out there, but that one just, you gotta have it, you gotta know it. The Chronicle of Philanthropy, I think, is still a really important publication for industry trends, and it is so useful to compare, as was mentioned, the 16% downtrend in philanthropy across the nation. How is your organization stacking up against that? You need to be able to take a look and see, you know, where are the strengths and where are the weaknesses of your own organization? I also want to share fundraising-academy.org, the Fundraising Academy has free webinars online that include CFRE credit, and they have an amazing overall curriculum, especially for newer fundraisers, but highly recommend checking them out. Very good. Thank you. What's your favorite conference and why? Well, obviously, AFP Icon, because I'm a... Oh. <laughs> Let's hear it for but Icon. I do. 
It's true. I mean, it's the International Conference of, for Fundraising in the world, biggest one in the world. And it is really helpful to um, be able to go to different sections and learn, again, industry trends, what's happening across the nation, how does your organization up, and being able to be with other fundraisers is always just a joy. And I think for mass market, it's definitely the bridge to integrated marketing and fundraising. You know, for me, that's the bread and butter. It's for the folks that live on the mass market side and the folks who kind of are on the other the mid-level giving side that are both working in that sort of marketing communication, philanthropic communication space. It really allows you to understand so many nuances of it below sort of the direct donor contact piece. Everything from data analytics to the way in which you're writing your communications to the different ways you're using omnichannel, I think. That is the one I don't miss every year. I just absolutely love it. And then obviously have to give the plug for Institute for Charitable Giving, which does seminars twice a year and has some pretty cool faculty. So, <laughs> well, so what's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> what's not to love? Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a great conference and it's primarily geared toward major gift work and, and the integration. So it's a goodie yeah. for sure. All right, last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising and mass marketing, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? I would say be patient. I think I have learned things about myself and grown in every job I've taken on, and they've all built upon each other. And for my situation, I was in communications and then marketing PR sort of grew into fundraising, which I don't think people graduate from college and go, yeah, I'm going to be a fundraiser. <laughs> you sort of end up in it. And I think having the patience to realize, hey, this makes sense. And this is the, you know, just you've got to peel the onion to learn about yourself. Even being in the fundraising sector, I've done major gifts, was not my cup of tea. So knowing what your strengths are, what aspect of, of it that you want to specialize in, because even if you want to be able to, to help nonprofits and be there to support them, doesn't mean you have to be a major gift officer. You could work in communications. You could work in philanthropy, um, other sides of it on the mass market side. So there's lots of different ways to get involved, you know, kind of learn about yourself through, through trying different aspects of it. I was the strange one who did come out of college and find fundraising. <laughs> but that actually leads to my, my advice for baby fundraiser, Laura, which is build your personal network. For me, the Association of Fundraising Professionals was a huge component of that. It's so important to have mentors within your organization, but also outside of it. Because to pick up the phone and say, hey, this weird, challenging thing is happening and I'm not sure. First, you might not find it's as unusual as you thought it was. And second, having someone else's perspective can be really useful when they're not in the same mire that you are every day, that they might be able to slice into whether, I mean, maybe that's a questionable ethical practice. Maybe, oh yeah, that's normal and we handle it this way. Maybe it's just a standard that you're not familiar with yet, but being able to have trusted colleagues you can count on for those strange questions, that has come in handy for me time and again. So good. So good. Thank you both. I and mean, you're both so amazing and together, wow. Just wow. Thank you both for joining us Thanks today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Tammy. You have to make it over to Diego. I will. I will for sure. <laughs> if you want to learn more about Jeff Spitko, Laura Rice, or the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, or any of the other resources that we've discussed today, check out the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. 
Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.